Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part two of a three-part conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner as they discuss integrative oncology. Well, Brian, just to pick up where we stopped for a moment, and then I want to take a deep dive into some of the specific therapies that you want to talk about before lunch. Um, but when I was talking, when we were talking about the healing power of love and um, one of the things that, so it connects to all the great traditions of virtue healing and spiritual healing and so forth in the different traditions, but it also connects very deeply to Larry Lachan's work, uh, the great psychotherapist who wrote You Can Fight for Your Life, who was really the first psychotherapist to say you can fight for your life with cancer. And Lachan said that he found that many of his patients who did well long-term, quote, found their own song. That was his, you know, version, which is close to Joseph Campbell's Follow Your Bliss, you know. And so what's interesting to me thinking about it is <clears throat> what's the relationship between the healing power of human love, the healing power of connecting with the divine, finding your own song, or connecting with nature or a pet or passion or whatever it is. And what I am thinking now, this may change, <clears throat> is that very, I think there's, there's a useful distinction between the ego personality and the soul. And I think that some deep healings take place at the ego personality level, that there are personality issues that need to be addressed, problems in everyday living, just characterological problems that you're dealing with. But then at the level of the soul and its connection with the divine, it goes beyond the characterological problems. It goes to a whole different level. And so I think both are efficacious. And if there are issues at the ego personality level that need to be resolved that are primary, uh, those can be extraordinary. That's where I think Lachan's Find Your Own Song is hanging out. Um, but if there is, um, but you know the literature on habits and how there are master habits and sub habits. And if you can change a master habit, the others line up like soldiers behind it. Well, there is a, yeah. a literature on changing habits, and it turns out that if you can shift a master habit, that a whole other set of habits can become, quote, virtuous. It becomes a virtue healing. And um, so it seems to me that when one connects with the divine, it's like shifting the master habit, you know. I think Alcoholics Anonymous works on that principle, you know, that it connects you, you know, that you surrender to a greater being. And, and then all the other virtues kind of follow from that. So anyway, to me, this question of the healing power of love and the different levels of healing power of love and the different relationships is a fundamental one. And I just wonder whether you reflect on those kinds of questions. Um, from a slightly more biochemical standpoint, Yeah, I'd love I to do. hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, We, we mentioned epigenetics yeah. earlier. So what, <clears throat> knowing that, you know, okay, there's a basic genetic sequence that we're born with that doesn't change, but those genes aren't all active at the same time. Right. You know, some are turned on, some are turned off. And it's the, it's the epigenetic influences. And I think it was about 20 years ago that there was some research done um, at Stanford looking at what the influence is of mind-body practice um, on those epigenetics and how things can actually be measured in the genome with downstream effects on you know, inflammatory markers or mood mm -hmm. or various components like that. And of course, you know, the entire palette of neurotransmitters, you know, I mean, it's this amazing array of things like you know, 5-HTP and histamine and um, norepinephrine that can be altered by what our mental state is. And our mental state can be heavily influenced by things like meditation practice, mm -hmm. by love. And mm -hmm. so that's, 
And so I, I believe deeply in that. I've experienced it certainly mm -hmm. in my own life mm -hmm. and seen it with patients. Um, and, and I also like having a little bit more of scientific way of, you know, characterizing that and sometimes even measuring it because, you know, there are ways of doing neurotransmitter panels on the urine and seeing, you know, what's upregulated, what's downregulated. You know, are there natural medicines that can work with some of those things? Yes, you know, there are. That's beautiful and, and helpful. Helpful because that is the science base behind the level of... of uh, discourse that, that I've been at in this. So deep breath. Um, we're going to change the um, conversation now and do a deep dive for the next 45 minutes and then continue in the afternoon into some of the specific therapies that you found most useful. So I'm going to just turn it over to you and let you go down the list. I may ask you questions as we go. Oh, I hope so. First of all, just as a little bit of an overview, um, I wanted to be really clear that my deep belief and personal experience um, line up in that conventional cancer therapies have a lot of usefulness. Yeah. Surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapies, um, and that at the same time, they tend to be overused by the conventional oncology community, um, sometimes inappropriately or sometimes um, just wrong. Um, and that the style of practice that evolved for me over the years is one of looking at what conventional cancer therapies have to offer somebody with a specific diagnosis um, and what are the alternative or complementary therapies that we can use to both influence the outcome of that treatment to make it work even better, but also to help the person as they're going through the side effects of some of the more toxic therapies. Um, so I, I don't, so when I talk about some of these other treatments, I don't want you to think these are things that we would ever use by themselves unless somebody had gotten to a place where the conventional cancer community said there's nothing more we can do for you. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier about Michael talked about the importance of general health, about bringing somebody to a state of optimal health, not only you know, for balance in their lives and to feel good, but also because somebody who's in a better state of health is going to do better when it comes to going through cancer treatment, um, both in terms of what they can tolerate and also for the eventual outcome. So from a functional medicine standpoint, you know, that means looking at glandular function, with the, you know, the most important being adrenal and thyroid, um, getting some sense of where someone's balance is by doing some specific testing. Um, and often that testing is done in a, a, a most comprehensive fashion by integrative doctors, whether they be naturopaths, MDs, DOs, um, sometimes acupuncturists. Um, and um, and then trying to bring those into balance um, before the rest of the treatment even gets started, get somebody healthy. Another um, important component is we talked about the, about the whole thing of toxicity. Um, it would be nice to start with as clean a slate as you can. So if somebody has some other conditions that might be impacting their immune function, such as a biotoxin illness, such as mold or Lyme disease, or if they have an overload of heavy metals, too much mercury or cadmium or something, it's good to try and work with getting that out. If you're not in a place where you have to jump on the treatment right away, if you've got a little bit of time, it's worth taking you know, a few months to work on getting that, that person's body cleaned up um, and, and more ready for whatever else they're gonna be going through. Um, there has been a long-standing bias in the conventional oncology community that antioxidant treatments such as high-dose vitamin C um, can interfere with the effectiveness of chemotherapy. There's never been a single study um, in the medical literature that, that actually um, supports that. Um, and in fact, there are some newer studies that show that are beginning to show just the opposite. But back in the 90s, there was uh, an oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering who was in, being interviewed by um, uh, a reporter from the New York Times about cancer treatment and brought up the issue of, you know, said, you know, we know that a lot of people are using antioxidants, specifically high-dose intravenous vitamin C. What do you think about that? 
And the oncologist said, well, we're actually quite worried about that because we think that those treatments can block the effect of the treatments that, that we're producing. We don't know enough, and so people should never do anything like that. That became gospel. It just, I mean, that just spread through the oncology community nationwide, maybe even worldwide, and has been, you know, kind of the dominant attitude, although it's starting to shift a little bit. Most oncologists still don't want their patients taking vitamins, supplements, and they certainly don't want them doing IV vitamin C. Regarding high-dose vitamin C, when you get to a high dose, my understanding is that it's acting as an oxidant and That's not right. as an antioxidant. That's right. It is. It's, it is. It's a pro-oxidant. It's an oxidative therapy. And there's been some very exciting work going on at the University of Kansas, um, which I'm sure the integrative docs know about, um, looking at using high-dose IV vitamin C with a variety of different kinds of cancers. And they've been releasing little bits of you know, information you know, here and there in some studies. And overall, they're finding you know, they're, they're actually able to prove that, yes, it does work in, a, in specific types of cancers, and that it, and it does not seem to block the effect of conventional therapies that patients are undergoing at the same time. Um, but is it true also uh, that you would not, Brian, uh, hold back on antioxidants in, for someone who's on chemo? That's, that's, that's true, and there, are some, and there are some that we'll mention that are in the laundry list here, some specific antioxidants that are very, very useful. Um, specifically alpha-lipoic acid um, is the one that we've used intravenously with pancreatic cancer with some good success, and we'll talk about that. Um, one of the therapies I was introduced to, oh gosh, maybe 15 years ago by Dwight McKee, who's another retired integrative oncologist that um, spent a lot of time networking with. And another deep thought leader and that we would very, very, add to the very much list so. we've been pulling together here, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, was the idea of what's called copper chelation. Um, copper is an essential substance for a process known as angiogenesis, which is the formation of new blood vessels um, that specifically that feed tumors. And there are two kinds of angiogenesis. There's the normal kind that we need to restore normal tissue, and then there's the very rapid angiogenesis that occurs that cancer cells can actually signal the body to do so that the cancer cells can feed themselves with nutrients, um, especially glucose, um, which is essential for cancer cell growth. Um, copper, without copper, angiogenesis shuts down. And so there was a study that was published back in the early 2000s from the University of Michigan that looked at chelating copper with a drug called tetrothiomolybdate, uh, abbreviated TM4, and putting people on a low copper diet. And they had some interesting, you know, useful results from it. They saw cancer slowing down. They saw some people cancer stopping. Dwight started working with it uh, while he was still in practice. I started working with it with some selected patients. Um, and I definitely saw results. I saw some people, especially with um, colon cancer, where people who had gone through conventional treatment, um, it had gotten rid of a lot of it, but they still had elevated markers. There was some concern. And we would put them on this long-term treatment with this drug, and um, they would stabilize, meaning that you know the tumors might not disappear, but they stopped growing. And so they were able to continue on with their lives. Um, it's a little tricky doing this treatment because um, if angiogenesis shuts down too far, all bone marrow function starts to shut down, which means white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. So there needs to be an ongoing careful monitoring of basically a CBC, a complete blood count, which has those three elements involved in it. Um, and there's some titration that occurs, starting somebody at a lower dose, you know, kind of building them up and then checking the copper levels in the blood through simple blood tests, checking copper and another um, copper-carrying protein called ceruloplasmin. So um, the only person that I know that's actively working with this right now is Dr. Lois Johnson in Sebastopol, who is in the same practice that I retired from two years ago. Um, Do you want to mention the name of the practice? For it's Hill Park Integrative Medical Center. So Lois is still doing that work. Lois is a, do you know Lois? I don't. Lois is a very interesting yeah. physician. Mm -hmm. um, she actually did a, a traditional oncology fellowship, 
came out at the end of it and said, I don't think I want to spend my career pouring poison into people's veins. Mm. So she became an herbalist. She mm. took a very, very serious um, two-year herbal course starting mm. with Rosemary Gladstar and then branching out and has become a very, um, very wise, very valuable um, um, herbal therapist as well and is providing integrative functional medicine, including herbal medicine. And Sanja actually worked in her office for a while. Um, mm during the time he was with me. Um, so that's the copper chelation. And it's something that I always kind of look to is, okay, what else can we do you know, with this person? Um, and of course, insurance doesn't pay for anything like this. The last time I looked at copper chelation therapy, it looked like it was about 300 bucks a month for the medicine. And the medicine has to be compounded, has to come from a compounding pharmacy. It is legal for doctors to prescribe it because it's also a known chelator for certain other heavy metals, such as lead. Um, and I can't remember if it chelates mercury or not, do you? I don't think so, yeah, okay. Um, so that's copper chelation. Um, we, in my time in practice, we did a lot of intravenous vitamin C and then towards the latter years, we often combined it with intravenous alpha-lipoic acid. I'm sure you all remember Linus Pauling, who was a real uh, mover and shaker in the field going back years and years. He was the one who first promoted high-dose vitamin C as a, uh, a therapy for cancer. Um, it didn't always work. Interestingly, in my own personal experience, it looked like I would get the best results with urological cancers, kidney cancer and bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is usually a bear to treat and they would sometimes respond incredibly well. Um, the IV intravenous alpha-lipoic acid came from the work of Dr. Burton Berkson, B-E-R-K-S-O-N, in New Mexico, who's an integrative oncologist, um, who found that, uh, uh, and he actually published this in Keith Block's Journal of Integrative Medicine several years ago, um, that, uh, that intravenous alpha-lipoic acid treatments had a stabilizing effect on pancreatic cancer, and he had one patient who seemed to be completely cured of it. So he worked with low-dose naltrexone and alpha-lipoic acid. Yes, it was the combination of oral low-dose naltrexone right. and intravenous alpha-lipoic acid. Was he also using vitamin C? No. Okay. He wasn't. He was just using uh, alpha-lipoic, ALA, and uh, naltrexone. Um, a word about naltrexone. Naltrexone is, gosh, it must be 40 or 50 years um, out there now, was developed as a narcotic blocker to help people who are, um, who are narcotic addicted, um, whether it's through heroin, you know, illicit drugs, or through conventional opiates to get off the drug because it blocks the opiate receptors in the central nervous system so that if somebody takes an opiate, they get no effect from it. So it was something in my early training that we used to give to people who were heroin addicts who wanted to try to get clean. Um, in the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, there was a physician named Dr. Bahari in Brooklyn who was seeing a number of um, HIV patients who also were um, heroin addicted. And in trying to help them get off the heroin, he was using naltrexone and noticed that those patients seemed to get way fewer of the opportunistic infections and secondary cancers that AIDS patients get. Mm. So he then started trying it with some of his cancer patients, you know, his own small study, wasn't funded by anybody, so he couldn't get it up to the numbers that had statistical power in the way that doctors like to look at that. But he put the information out there and a number of, you know, alternative physicians and integrative physicians started using it um, specifically for treatment of cancer. And what we found is that the dose that was needed was, was approximately one-tenth of the conventional dose that's used for, for completely blocking the heroin receptors, the, the opiate receptors. So it was like four to five milligrams. The dose he picked was 4.5 milligrams, whereas for treatment of uh, opiate addiction, it was 50 milligrams. Was that a day? Yeah, and it's usually taken as a bedtime dose. Mm -hmm. And some of the potential scientific explanation for this, at least the way we look at it, is that by blocking the opiate receptors at nighttime only, you're creating a deficit in naturally produced endorphins. Mm. 
And so the body then thinks that it needs to manufacture more, and then you give the person a holiday from the drug during the daytime, at which point the body ramps up and starts producing more of these endorphins, which have an anti-inflammatory effect and secondarily an anti-cancer effect. That's, and any, any of you know, you know as much or more about this than me, chime in if I'm getting any of this wrong, please. Um, and so it has become pretty standard in the integrative medicine yeah. management. And Dr. Berkson combined it with his treatment of alpha-lipoic uh, cancer, uh, alpha-lipoic acid for treatment specifically of pancreatic cancer. And then in his later work, started generalizing it to other gastrointestinal cancers as well. So he then started using it for colon cancer, small intestine cancers, um, biliary cancers, uh, and would always report a couple of patients here or there, but never had a lot of enough patients to get what we call statistical power. Um, the intravenous vitamin C and alpha-lipoic are incredibly inexpensive compared to mainstream therapies, and they're not covered by insurance. So typically, an infusion costs in the, na in the neighborhood of a few hundred dollars, and patients are usually looking for treatments you know, two to three times a week for you know, two to three months, something like that. So you can do the math to figure out how that works. Um, but we saw, we saw good results with it, and it continues to be a mainstay of the treatment you know, that's provided at the office that I retired from um, and other integrative practitioners. Um, Alpha-lipoic acid also works orally as an antioxidant and uh, is in the same pathway as um, N-acetylcysteine in helping the body to produce uh, L, uh, I'm sorry, to produce um, reduced glutathione. Glutathione is a neuroprotective antioxidant that we make. And in many situations, we want more of it because it seems to have some anti-cancer effects. It has anti-inflammatory anti effects and is protective for the central nervous system as well. I imagine that's one of the things that you're looking at in your protocol for cognitive decline is using glutathione. And unfortunately, glutathione's not very well absorbed from the GI tract. Um, there are forms of it where they bind it to um, phospholipids or liposomes, which makes it a little bit better absorbed. Um, but honestly, the best way to get it is by intravenous injection. So, and maybe you have something to We're doing IV glutathione in our office very regularly. Could you say that again a little louder? We, we do, for many different indications, we do intravenous glutathione. Uh, treatments in our office uh, as part of as part of heavy metal detox, uh, we would often include uh, glutathione uh, for chemical detox. We measure people's chemicals. Uh, we use a various uh, uh, laboratory work that measures uh, chemical toxins. If people have high chemical toxin loads, we would do. Uh, intravenous glutathione, uh, if, if they can make it into the office. If they can't come into the office, we sometimes will do nebulized glutathione treatments with people. They get a nebulizer like, a, like an asthma patient would use, uh, and they would you know, inhale a certain dose of, of glutathione twice a day. And uh, We find that to be uh, a tremendously effective treatment for, for many people. Um, I, we also use a lot of lipoic acid um, and, and other uh, mm -hmm. detoxification treatments. Good, thanks, Ann. Um, and actually, uh, I'll be Debbie Downer for a moment here. Um, the, pl the plug may get pulled on the availability of glutathione. Chris, you want to tell them what you know? Sure. Um, glutathione is one of the compounds that doesn't have... Um, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials for this, and it's made the list that the FDA is looking to pull from the market at this point, as well as, as, well as vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C, and a number of other compounds that we use. Um, some of my professors, including Paul Anderson from Seattle, are actively trying to work with the FDA to now show efficacy, have patient testimonials of how they were helped, um, but it's a pretty big deal. This this current FDA uh, commissioner is really going after this in a in a in a way that we haven't seen before. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, uh, Dr. Perlmutter, the uh, pretty well known urologist from uh, Naples, Florida, 
has been doing work for, you know, what, 20 years showing, uh, he has documented videos showing before and after uh, videos of people. Uh, glutathione is, is high-dose glutathione is, is used for, for Parkinson's disease. And not all Parkinson's patients, but some Parkinson's patients will have a dramatic uh, reversal within, you know, right after their, their IV from being having a very shuffling gait and a significant tremor, et cetera, to walking normally. And one of the most famous stories, he had an ophthalmologist who did ophthalmologic surgery twice a week. He would come in in the morning with a significant tremor. He would get his IV glutathione. He would do ophthalm ophthalmologic surgery for six hours. Uh, you know, absolutely, completely stable twice a week. And then at the evening, uh, in the evening, he, he would get some of his tremor back. The, wow. the belief also is that the course of the, of the Parkinson's disease is significantly slowed, not totally reversed, by getting regular IV glutathione. So, I mean, it seems to me that there's a tremendous amount of, of evidence <sighs> and... and you know, definitely yeah, just, just David Perlmutter should be involved in, in, these, in these discussions. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so there's a war out there. <laughs> um, but let's just, uh, one question about this, because, and I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but patients, when things are not available in the United States, often find ways to bring them into the country. So uh, are some of these substances available outside the country? I mean, let me, let me step back. I am a believer in John Stuart Mill's premise, which is fundamental to uh, Anglo-Saxon law, that we have a quite uh, irreversible right to do what we choose with our own bodies, all right? And so therefore, when a when the government, in the name of keeping us safe, precludes us from doing treatments that, you know, make some kind of sense, I just have trouble with that. You know, I know both sides of the issue, but I have trouble with that. So, so I believe that, um, while well, I'm a great believer in, in the law, I also believe that there's a tension between the law when it, it enter, when it steps into this fundamental tenet of, of Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence, that we have the right to do it. So with that background, um, I think there's a balance that the FDA is faced with that they don't always get right. So I guess my question is, uh, do patients find ways to access these things outside the United States uh, when they can't get them within the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, and currently, the legal status of that is that you are allowed to bring a, a person for their own personal use is allowed to bring any medication um, from a foreign country mm -hmm. back through um, uh, <clears throat> to the United States, mm -hmm. um, and it's supposed to be for their own personal use, right. but Mm -hmm. There's some fudging that goes on yeah, to yeah. allow that to happen. Yeah. And we've sent patients to Europe to get stuff that they couldn't get here. Yeah. A good example is something called OM85, which I'll talk about a little okay, bit later good. when we talk about the Recchia protocol treatment. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and also uh, related to that is buying drugs from Canadian online pharmacies, which I'm a big believer in. Mm -hmm. um, and I've used those pharmacies with patients for years. Uh, and the way that that works is that, and the one that I like the best and work with is called um, northwestpharmacy.com. That's their website. And you can go on their website and look, put in the search box the name of the drug that you're looking for. And then the various forms of that drug, the various dosages that are available, whether it's generic or brand will come up and how much it costs. You're listening to part two of a three-part TNS conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner. A lot of the drugs that they have out of Canada, which they then source from other countries in the world as well, um, are um, generics that are not even available as generics in the United States. Mm -hmm. But they also have the brands from the pharmaceutical companies. 
And I've seen patients save as much as 90% on the cost of a drug, of a very expensive drug. Um, I mean, it's just absolutely remarkable. Rifaximin, for example, which is something that we use for um, a gastrointestinal condition called small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Uh, you know, a, a, a two-week prescription for Zodaxin in this country costs $1,300. We were able to get a two-month supply for patients for about $150. It's insane. Um, and there are lots of examples of that. And I think that the drugs are good quality, and a lot of doctors are totally afraid to do it. They don't want their patients going there. They think that there's not good quality control, and I disagree with that. The way that it works is... For you to order a prescription from them, your doctor has to fax a prescription to the Canadian pharmacy, and then you, the patient goes on the website, finds the drug, and orders what they want. And so is, is that legal, given that... It's the, legal. Okay. What's not legal is to use your credit card anymore because right. they were able to stop... The, the drug companies were... The lobby was able to stop them from accepting credit cards. <laughs> so... so so you have to either send them a check or you can write out a check and email, email a copy of the uh -huh. check to them. Interesting. It's a war. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's a war. It's also such a profound policy issue, yeah. you know, at the deepest level. I think if the American public and balanced, thoughtful people who care about people with cancer or whatever it is, we just need to get this right, you know, so... Please, Brian, continue. Right. So um, I mentioned the Reckia protocol, so let's go there. Yeah. Um, I guess it's probably been about five or six years since Francesco Reckia, who's an Italian oncologist who was trained at MD Anderson, working in Italy, um, presented a, um, made a presentation at an American cancer, uh, not American Cancer Society, but another organization called, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's one of the big cancer groups. He did a presentation showing the results of um, a study that he had done for five years using a combination of an injectable immunotherapy called interleukin-2 in combination with um, retinoic acid. Retinoic acid is uh, like a high-dose vitamin A, and it's available as the acne drug Accutane. The interleukin-2 is an injectable um, and is used for the has been used historically in this country for treatment of metastatic kidney cancer, which was always very difficult to treat. And it's one of the few things that ever worked. But in the way it was being used, it was incredibly toxic. Um, the doses were in the order of 90 million units given twice a day intravenously. And about a third of the patients who were treated that way would develop some horrible complications. Uh, the main one called capillary leak syndrome. And, you know, there was about a 15 to 20% death rate from the treatment. But Reckia picked a dose that was much, much smaller than that. He picked a dose that was basically 150th of that. Um, and he gave it subcutaneously instead of intravenously. And nobody got sick from it. Um, and he combined it with the retinoic acid, which is an anti-angiogenic agent. So it, it slows the, in the same way that the copper chelation does. It can slow the growth of the new blood vessels. So he was hitting it from a two kind of you know kind of a, a, a two-part treatment system, and he treated patients with a variety of metastatic cancers. The group that he picked were all patients that had been pre-treated, you know, with you know chemotherapy, radiation, and he followed them for five years, and he saw significant improvement. Overall, is this sounding familiar to you now? Yes. Right. Yeah. And um, so he presented that at this conference. I picked it up, you know, on the internet a few days later, and I called Mark Reniger, you know, who I, I've mentioned earlier, and I said, Mark, I said, do you know about this? He said, Are you kidding? I was at that conference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we were very excited about it. Mark doesn't practice medicine; he does advocacy and research. But I decided, you know, I've got to take this on. So I started doing it. Um, the, inter the, the, main, um, uh, the main block in this was the cost of the interleukin-2, which was just extraordinarily expensive. And initially, insurance paid for it a few times, and then they got wind that this was going to cost them a fortune, and they shut it down. Um, but the, you know, basically, people have to do two subcutaneous you know, under-the-skin injections a week for, I'm sorry, it's five days a week for three weeks per month was the protocol. And on those same days, they would take one pill of Accutane, which was the, you know, the high dose, like the high dose vitamin A. And we started seeing people responding to it. We saw cancer slow down. Um, it was, you know, it was pretty exciting. And um, I believe Lois is still doing that, correct? 
Yeah, again, and one of the few patients in the Bay Area um, who was making that available. Um, Keith would love to do it, but he's afraid of the Illinois Medical Board. Um, he knows he'd get shut down in a heartbeat, mm -hmm. you know, if he, if, he, if he played with something like that. Um, I don't, do you know anybody else who's doing that in the no, Bay Area? I don't, I don't. I, I was gonna ask you, is that, are there particular cancers that, that you would think about using that for, or would that be kind of across the board? He seemed to have somewhat better results, in a small study, he seemed to have somewhat better results with certain types of cancers. Um, you know, it looked like everything responded at least at the level of about 15 to 20%, and others were more like 30 to 40%. Um, I can, at some point, I can give you a link to his paper, um, right, and, and you can look that. at that information. Yeah. And he, and because he was trained in the States, you know, he's very fluent in English, and he has been um, very, very cooperative with answering emails from me with questions about patients. So You know, something that this brings up is in our forthcoming website, beyondconventionalcancertherapies.org. Uh, um, this will just take a minute to say, but in addition to the integrative, people think of as integrative or functional or naturopathic medicines or the basic health promotion, another key ingredient, which you've mentioned, and Mark Renneker and Keith Block and Dwight McKee and Donald Abrams are all fully aware of, is what we're beginning to call, because it doesn't have a name, we're calling them ANCAs, which stands for Overlooked uh, Novel Cancer Approaches. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to capture there is that there are a whole set of these therapies that aren't naturopathic or holistic or any of that stuff. They are developed by credentialed mainstream mm -hmm. physicians they come out of the mainstream, That's what but for saying. whatever reason, they're overlooked or ignored or neglected. So metformin comes in that category. You know, what you're describing here comes in that. There's just a whole set of them. And in fact, with the really superb <coughs> practitioners, that's a big piece of what they use. So, but in the conventional sense of what is integrative cancer therapy, People say it's the best of conventional and the best of complementary approaches. That leaves out entirely this great big piece of what integrative oncology is really about. Although I think of that as being sandwiched right in the middle, right in between them. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I agree mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of thinking. It's sandwiched between them. <clears throat> but it's, it's overlooked in the mainstream, or it's not mentioned in the mainstream, and for the most part... Uh, I don't think a lot of naturopathic oncologists are are referring to those, are they, Chris? Well, for sure, the IVC. And there, the there are a few, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. but it isn't part of the standard thing that naturopaths do, right? Uh, for those of us trained in oncology, it is. Oh, okay. Thank yeah. you for the correction. Yeah. That's really helpful. I just think conceptually, if that gets left out, it's a great big piece of you know what we need to be paying attention to. Go ahead, Brian. Um, and there are some side effects with the, the Accutane, the retinoic right. acid, that, watch, that right. need to be watched for. Um, it can affect thyroid function. It can sometimes cause liver enzyme elevation. But people who are you know, working with the protocol know all that and right. kind of monitor those. Overall, way, way, way safer than some of the conventional yeah. therapies. Yeah. Um, you mentioned metformin, which I hadn't yeah. mentioned, but yeah. I want to talk about. Yeah. So metformin is probably familiar to most of you. It's, an, it's a drug that's used for treatment of type 2 diabetes. It's been around for a long time. Pretty safe drug. There was some research that was done, we're probably going back seven or eight years now, looking at metformin specifically in the treatment of breast cancer because it was noticed that diabetic women who were taking metformin tended to have better outcomes than non-diabetic women. And typically, diabetics do worse with lots of you know, cancers and inflammatory diseases um, because of the high sugar loads that they're dealing with. So, you know, initially, we didn't know if it was because we were just, you know, it lowered, you know, it, and, and the way that metformin works is um, metformin works at the interface between insulin and insulin receptors on the cells. Insulin is produced by the pancreas, and its job is to help move sugar from the, from the blood into cells, specifically muscle cells for work, but also into other organs and into the central nervous system. Um, 
if there's too much sugar around, it promotes inflammation and ultimately cardiovascular disease, which is why the ravages of diabetes you know, can, can be um, uh, as bad as they are. And metformin is a drug that improves insulin um, sensitivity. So it makes the insulin get taken up by the receptors on the cells better than the insulin would be on its own. So the, you know, the initial thought was, well, by improving insulin sensitivity, we're helping to lower blood sugar, and therefore we're keeping a lower sugar level, which is good in cancer patients because sugar feeds cancer. We all know, know that part. But then since then, there's been other research that shows that actually that the metformin has some specific anti-cancer effects um, working, on, you know, working at the level of the biochemistry of cancer independent of the glucose issue. This is all mainstream research. I have had a number of, and so it's something I would have, I've prescribed quite commonly for patients with a variety of cancers because it also works, you know, then they started looking at other cancers, including ovarian cancer, and found that it had some effectiveness. Um, the oncologists all know about this, and if I would, and the patients would ask them to prescribe it, and they'd go, well, I know about that research, it looks pretty good, but I can't really prescribe it because it's not FDA approved. Um, and they would not object to me prescribing it. Mm -hmm. And since I wasn't working in an oncology group and under the, you know, that kind of tight surveillance that they're doing and trying to keep all their docs doing the right thing, I, I could get away with it. And I'm in California, not Illinois. So I, you know, I wasn't really putting my, my license in jeopardy by doing it. And they seemed perfectly supportive of me doing it, but didn't want to do it themselves. And I don't think that that's changed. Mm -hmm. You see it different? Mm -hmm. See it different? Mm -hmm. Nope. I had an oncologist prescribe it for me. You did? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and she's in a group. Where was that? Um, St. Joseph. That's great. So maybe it's changing. Yeah. That's, maybe it's changing. That's wonderful. Good to and know. What's the dosing? Um, usually we would try to get about 1,000 milligrams a day in, but some people get nauseous at that, so 850 became a little bit more common. Usually somewhere between 850 and 1,200 is the appropriate dosing for it. You know, a lot of the Cancer Health Program alumni are using metformin, so they're getting it somewhere. And um, one of our senior colleagues, who I won't name, at, at a Commonwealth conference said, you know, I think metformin is one of the best things out there for cancer. Mm -hmm. So I just want to underscore uh, that, as you said, you've used it commonly, you've seen results, it's mainstream literature. The doctors are saying, above, yeah. I know about it, I understand it, but I can't prescribe it. So, um, again, this is, is one of those. Cancers as well as solid tumors? No, it's, I've, only, I've only used it for solid tumors, and I've, only, and I've only seen research on solid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I just wanted to underscore the metformin. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, in the way of kind of general tuning up in and around mainstream treatment, um, some of the intravenous treatments that we used were more designed to work with helping to build people's immune systems um, and to create this more robust um, organism that we were talking about. And so some of the things that we would be using would be um, you know, intravenous or intramuscular B12 injections, specifically methyl B12, um, and um, B-complex, um, and sometimes other nutrients such as zinc, selenium, depending on what kind of um, cancer the person had, and also what's a baseline testing showed in terms of what the mineral balance looked like. Um, Keith does some of this work. Um, I was back there with my wife, um, when she was being treated, and Keith would always give an IV before chemotherapy that was nutrient-laden, you know, with multivitamins um, and, um, and minerals. And then, you know, a little break for an hour and then roll with the chemo. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that, you know, most of the people doing this work are the naturopathic oncologists. They know about this. Right. They do this work. Um, and especially if patients are anemic, either with you know, low blood, either baseline anemia you know, from other conditions or because of the cancer or because of cancer treatment, th these are especially, especially important to work with these kinds of nutrients. Um, Chinese herbs also have a role in treating some of the consequences of mainstream therapies. Traditional um, cytotoxic chemotherapies, the ones that you're all familiar with, like cisplatinum and, ta and the taxanes, 
um, five fluorouracil drugs like that, they all have an effect on the bone marrow. You know, the way these drugs work is they're toxic to all tissues in the body, but they're the most toxic to tissues that are turning over the fastest, that the body is regenerating the most quickly. So think about what those tissues are. It's the lining of the GI tract, it's the skin, um, it's the hair. So what happens to people on chemo? They lose their hair, they get nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Um, they get skin toxicity, skin rashes, you know, flaking, fissures, and stuff like that in the skin. So in looking at, you know, and so because, and so the doses of the chemotherapy are chosen so that you'll take those normal tissues to the edge of what they can tolerate knowing that the cancer cells, because they're also turning over very rapidly, they're growing very quickly, the cancer cells are gonna be more susceptible to the effects of those drugs. And that, so that's how that works, there's this balance. You know, don't go so far that you completely destroy the normal tissues, but take it far enough to kill the cancer cells. So how can you help bone marrow when it's being destroyed? There are prescription drugs that are given by injection for, to, to restore the function of the white cells um, things like Nupogen and Nulasta, and they work very well. Um, but there are also Chinese herbs that can help and can help across the board with both white cells, red cells, and platelets. The one that we used to use is called Marrow Plus, like bone marrow, bone marrow plus. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we learned about that one from Michael Brofman, mm -hmm. um, and that was helpful. Um, and sometimes the intravenous protocols will help as well with the general nutrients. Which intravenous protocols are you The one that we talked about using the B-complex, B12, okay. um, some of the minerals, you know, zinc, selenium, potassium. And is that... Magnesium is another one. Is that uh, intravenous uh, complex, is that a, a formula that practitioners can get somewhere? Or did you mix it yourself or what? Both. 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 You know, some of the compounding pharmacies um, have a pre-made mineral mix that we would use because it had the right balance. But if somebody had some specific things that they were especially low on or something high on, mm -hmm. we would either add or subtract to that. So there's a lot of a lot of customizing that goes on with that. Which which compounding pharmacy in the Bay Area does that a lot? Well, for intravenous compounding, we would go outside the Bay Area. I see. There are good compounders in the Bay Area for mm -hmm. oral drugs. Um, San Francisco, Koshland. Koshland mm -hmm. Pharmacy is really excellent. We've also used um, in Santa Rosa Dollar Drug for a number of years. They do a very good job. Where do you go for the IV? For the IVs, um, we use McGuff in Southern California. Mm -hmm. They mail order it. Um, there's a company that we use. Do we get our glutathione from back in Alabama called Wellness Pharmacy? Mm -hmm. um, Central Drugs, Park, Infamous. Right, yeah. So they're there are a number of them, and, and those have to be ordered by practitioners. Um, so, and this is what the naturopathic oncologists do, right? And a lot of folks that do functional medicine. Yeah, yeah. right, thank you. Um, so staying in this area, how much time do we have before we break? Uh, let's, let's keep going for a little bit. Okay. We, we, we have flexibility, and we're on a roll, so. Okay, so yeah. I'd like to... <laughs> I'd like to talk about the, so what I call the natural immunotherapies yeah. or the, the cutting-edge immunotherapies or the onc immu yeah. immunotherapies. So we mentioned the Reckia protocol, which is the interleukin-2 um, with the retinoic acid. And then he then, uh, a year or two later, made another presentation um, with just metastatic lung cancer patients. There had been pressure on him to try to create some data that was more acceptable to the larger cancer community. And the larger cancer community looking at research, they wanna see one kind of cancer treated with one specific treatment um, to get you know, a good statistical analysis. So he said, okay, we'll do it with just lung cancer this time. And because interleukin-2 had been, had been paid for by the European Union um, medical system, but all of a sudden there was a lot of it going out and it was very expensive, they shut it down in Europe. So he started looking for something else that he could use instead of the interleukin and started using a product called OM85. Those of you who know what Coley's toxins are, mm -hmm. OM85 is modern Coley's toxins. Wow. It's a large extract of, uh, of the cell walls of several types of bacteria that are immunogenic and that they promote an immune response in the patient. 
this has this stuff has been available in Europe as a non-prescription over-the-counter medicine for years for treatment of kids with bronchial asthma to help prevent recurrent uh, lung infections because of the asthma because of the, and, the, and the chronic bronchitis that they get. So he did a study and then, you know, followed these patients for, I don't know, four or five years and then presented the results and again showed that for patients with lung cancer using this combination of retinoic acid and OM85, again, he showed good, um, and there, there's two statistical outcomes that we look at in, in looking at statistical data with cancer patients. One of them is um, disease-free um, recurrence, and the other is, or, or is, and the other is called overall survival. So you're looking at number disease one. Disease-free survival. Disease-free, right. Yeah. So you're looking, okay, this, is the cancer coming back? And then, and then again, a step beyond that, how long is this person living? Yeah. And usually you want to see a little, you want to see some improvement in both of those parameters. And he did. He saw improvement in both of those parameters by about 30%, 35%, which is significant because these were all heavily pretreated patients with metastatic lung right. cancer. So initially, we couldn't get OM85 here, so I would have people go to Europe and get it, and they could just buy it over the counter. I actually sent one patient to see Dr. Recchia, um, and, and, he had, and he had metastatic lung cancer, and he came back and said, this was the most comprehensive examination I've ever ex received from an oncologist. He spent two hours with me, mm. went over intimate every detail of my health history, and then sent me over to the pharmacy and provided me with enough OM85 and retinoic acid for a year, and then the whole thing cost me $400. Mm. <laughs> you know, including the drugs and the visit and everything. Okay, that's great. We're obviously way behind on that one. Since then, OM85 has become available. You can order it off the internet. Um, it's out there. Um, it's so that makes that protocol Easily available. It makes it available. The patient needs to get a prescription for Accutane. Now, what's tricky about Accutane is the fact that Accutane is teratogenic, which means that it can cause birth defects in pregnant mothers who are taking it. Because of that, physicians who are writing a prescription for Accutane have to get a special license to write it, and they have to sign an affidavit that they have told all of their patients, you know, that they have to use birth control and that they, you know, and if they, that if they, you know, if they get pregnant, they have to have an early stage abortion um, because they're at high risk for teratogenicity. Well, how many pregnant patients did I have with cancer in my practice? I think I might have seen two in, you know, 15 years. So, but the doctor has to go through that because it's usually the dermatologists that have those licenses because they're the ones treating acne. So it's a little bit of a hurdle, but mm -hmm. still doable. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, you're, the, the answer to your question is it's a not too difficult to access treatment, mm -hmm. especially for lung cancer. But when the IL-2 got so expensive, I was also using it for patients with other types of cancers, feeling like it probably would work mm -hmm. as well. I didn't have enough patients that I did it with to give you, you know, to give you an impression of whether it was really working or not, but I think it probably would. Sanjay? What do you think is the mechanism of the OM85 for cancer? It's immunogenic. It's, it's I mean, co cholese toxins, it's just, it's just mm -hmm. ramping up the, you know, the immune system. Is cholese toxins a familiar term to you all? Yeah. From the, oh, so, so Coley was a surgeon in the late 19th century working, I think, at Bellevue Hospital in New York. And he found that people who got wound infections after their cancer surgery had a higher survival rate. He said, well, there must be something to this. You know, it's not just the fever. So he started culturing, you know, a variety of bacteria and creating these little toxic mixes and then giving it to patients and was seeing results with it. So that's the treatment called Coley's toxins and, you know, C-O-L-E-Y apostrophe S if you want to read about it. Are they all from gram-positive bacteria, or are they a combination of gram-positive and gram-negative? I don't remember whether they're gram-positive, gram-negative, or a combination. It's probably LPS, That's not correct. I would think so. I would think so. Yeah. Chris, you had a point? I was going to ask whether anyone had measured like things like tumor necrosis factor off of that. I don't think any of that works. Any of that work's been done. So now when I'm using the term immunotherapy, this is integrative immunotherapy or onc immunotherapy. There's also immunotherapy in conventional oncology now, which is just blowing away cancers that have never responded. And it's really some of the most exciting development in cancer treatment is these new drugs, the checkpoint inhibitors. 
that you probably know about, things like Keytruda, um, some of the drugs that are being used for metastatic melanoma, which has never responded well to anything. Um, anyway, so that's mainstream immunotherapy, and for some cancers, those are you know really, really very effective. So, the, so back to the integrative ones. Um, another drug that we've used that is legal to import from Europe is called Zadaxin, Z-A-D-A-X-I-N. It's alpha thymosin, and it is a um, it's a synthetic version of the protein that's produced by our thymus glands. So we're all born with thymus glands, which are very important in the development of our immune systems. And they tend to um, degenerate and wither down to almost nothing by the time we're two years of age. But there's still thymic activity, and it's in the mediastinum, this area around the heart. And white cells go to the thymus to be activated and to be programmed to work against specific kinds of cancers and infections. So this is the synthetic derived protein from that that can be given by injection um, and is also very, very effective for treatment of hepatitis C. And before the current treatments for hep C, which are also incredibly good, the mainstream treatments, this was one of the things that we would use in the alternative world for treating hep C and would see really good results with it. It also has a role in treating cancer as a, you know, a kind of sideline immunotherapy. And uh, one of the patients that I had who had um, malignant um, metastatic melanoma, which I think you all know is pretty aggressive um, and has a poor prognosis associated with it, there are new immunotherapy drugs that are using for that. And one of the early stage ones, and these are called CTL4 inhibitors, one of the early ones um, was having some mixed results. And we had a patient who was going to have it done, and I said, let's do some Zodaxin first. And so we did Zodaxin injections with him for about four or five months, and then he went into the immunotherapy and had a phenomenal, durable response to it. And he told the oncologist about what, he, what we were doing, and the oncologist said, I've never seen anybody else respond like this into this. I think it was this other stuff that you were doing. So there, there's a role for, you know, for all of these things. Zodaxin can be prescribed by any physician and has to be ordered from one of the European pharmacies. And there's one in Switzerland that I think we got this one from. I can't remember the name of it now, but I can, mm -hmm. I can get it for you mm -hmm. at some point. Um, the last one in the immuno world that I want to mention is um, interferon alpha. Interferon's been around for a long time. Um, it's been used, you know, with variable success in a variety of cancers. It can be pretty toxic, but there was a protocol that was developed specifically for treatment of head and neck cancers, which was the kind that I had, um, using a combination of interferon alpha along with Accutane that predated Dr. Recchia's work using, high, you know, again, the high-dose vitamin A thing. And it was, um, it was, you know, an injection of a million units of interferon alpha um, five days a week. So actually, I'm sorry, twice a week on that one, combined with the um, Accutane, you know, five days a week. Um, and that run for about two months. Well, you know, what we realized is that there's actually some subcutaneous transmucosal absorption of alpha interferon. And for people with head and neck cancers, which are all you know, mucosal-related cancers, you know, why not just put in the interferon into the mouth? And so we started doing that with much lower doses. We would have people just put a few drops of the alpha interferon under the tongue and hold it there, swish it around the mouth, and then use it with the Accutane um, with, with some of the head and neck cancers, usually squamous cell cancers, and we were seeing results with that. So that's another treatment, and, I'm the, and even though at this point I think we're beyond that in terms of what's available, that one is available at not too great an expense for somebody who doesn't respond to some of the other treatments um, or um, just you know wants to do you know likes the sound of this one. And when I say likes the sound of, um, I always thought of my practice as a collaborative practice with the mm -hmm. patients. So we were always looking at. Here, here are the options. Here are the various things we can do, and then let them either do their own research or sometimes just you know give me an intuitive sense of what they feel would be the best for them. So it's finances, personal choice, all of that was very important. And you mentioned you know the role of intuition in this, and I was just looking with a colleague at the uh, the liter literature review on. Uh, 
a physician intuition in medicine. And the mainstream literature on it is, in general, quite negative or extremely cautious about it. Um, a little stronger in the nursing literature. The nurses allow themselves a little more room. But if you look at Malcolm Gladwell's Blink or the whole, actually the literature on intuition and decision-making is extremely strong across a whole set of different arenas. And again, you have, uh, so here you have a situation where the clinician and the patient both have access to intuition. And yet in mainstream medicine, it's ignored or neglected to a large degree. It's neglected, but physicians make intuitive decisions all the time. I know you've got that. somebody with high blood pressure, you've got six different drugs to choose. Yeah, yeah. Well, eeny, meeny, miny. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. What is that? Yeah. I guess my point, though, is that part of integrative oncology or integrative practice is really recognizing the power of the mainstream literature on intuition in business decisions, in finance, in military. There's just a whole set of areas where we know more than we know, you know, and so that's particularly critical in healing work, you know. So I just wanted to underscore the intuition piece. Okay, so then before I stop, I actually yeah. have one more yeah. because we have already talked about yeah, the yeah, talks and the importance of good. it. Uh, um, Chris and I have been discussing a case that he had recently um, where a lot of this plays, and I, I would like to take five minutes for him to just present that and, and what the current outcome is. Yeah, the, the, the mold patient, yeah. yeah. Right, so I recently was sent a woman around 65 years of age who had had uh, lung cancer, never was a smoker, never drank, didn't work with asbestos, it was kind of bizarre. And she came to me, she had had a resection, so she had surgery and chemo for this lung cancer. And right around the time that she came to see me, she had her follow-up CT and the CT came back with a bunch of ground glass opacities on the report, which her oncologist thought that that meant that she uh, was having a reoccurrence and it was all over in her lungs. When she first came to see me, I always asked the question, why did this person get cancer? And I listen to what they say, and then I also use my own intuition and ask a lot of questions about where they've lived and what they might have been exposed to. So I thought her case was bizarrely strange that she never um, never smoked, never worked, never did any of the things that you'd normally think of for lung cancer. And in part of my workup, I ordered a mold toxicology panel on her, and it came back sky high, the highest I'd ever seen. So then we ordered a mold inspection of her house, and I don't have a ton of mold cases, but her ERMI score on her house was a 17. That was the highest I've seen. And um, we then began treating her with glutathione, nebulized and injectables, and binders. And when she went in for her CT follow-up two months later, her scan was completely clean. And her, um, her oncologist was blown away at, because they thought she was having a reoccurrence and were getting ready to make the next round of chemo for her. Extraordinary. Yeah, it's great. Which goes back to something that Mark Renneker does in his uh, practice and his training of uh, other advocates, um, which we can say more about later. But when Mark reviews a case, the first thing he's trying to do is disprove the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. He is doing everything he can to disprove uh, that the diagnosis is correct. And so that's an extraordinary tool. He's looking at every possibility that they've got it wrong. And in fact, in the, uh, one, it's known that in mainstream cancer that the weak link in cancer diagnosis and treatment is how the pathology reports are read, you know, because that's, there is very different error rates at different hospitals, you know, and Mark has a whole thing about the different places he will send, uh, you know, the, the pathology samples to be read independently. So uh, your point, Chris, that here was a situation, they're ready to start treatment, and in fact, you know, 
she, they would have been treating for the wrong thing. Or potentially, she had cancer again. And this, so do you know whether it was a recurrence that this dealt with, or do you know that it just wasn't a recurrence at all? No, because we, we asked to treat the mold before they went ahead to do another biopsy. I get it. So and we so don't know. We don't instance. know. Yeah, interesting. I suspect that the mold toxins were driving the cancer in the first place. Because yeah. that was the biggest um, cancer-causing substance I could find in her body of yeah. the things that we had tested for. And it was very, very high. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and what you just said about Mark was probably one of the most important things that I learned from him when I trained. Um, and... Um, my receptionist in my office of many years um, called me because her husband had a high PSA on a routine mm-hmm. physical. PSA is prostate-specific antigen, and it's a marker for um, prostate cancer. So he, he went in and had a biopsy, and the biopsy came back with a, a, a Gleason score of 7-8. That's a scoring system for prostate cancers. It's pretty high. So they were getting ready to do either you know radical surgery or radiation. And I said, let me get a copy of the pathology report. And I looked at it and then I read it and, you know, it was kind of classic for cancer and had one signature at the bottom. And I said, this doesn't sound so good. So I got the slides and I sent them back to Johns Hopkins, which is where like the, you know, most highly respected uh, prostate pathologist in the world uh, has his office. Uh, And he reviewed the slides personally and called me and said, nope, no cancer here. Mm -hmm. Wow. that's yeah, really, it's huge. It's huge. And so I learned something just the other day. I was talking to a senior uh, uh, physician from San Francisco General Hospital, and I was talking about this issue of pathology reports being misread. And he told me something which I didn't know. I wondered if it's standard practice. He said, at San Francisco General, if they have any question about the reading of the pathology <laughs> reports, they send it out to three other centers, to Stan- Stanford and to other places or elsewhere in the country if they need to. That's great, but what if they don't have a question about it? There you go. But how common is it in mainstream oncology that as a standard practice, if they don't have a question, that they send it to two or three other questions? I mean, if they do have a question. I think that what's become standard now, and actually at the particular hospital where this one was read, you know, Mm -hmm. we then called the hospital and the pathology department now always had at least two sets of eyes um, Mm -hmm. on reading any set of slides. Um, I think it's pretty standard now that all reports have a second name on them that this was personally reviewed by so-and-so. Um, and, and I'm also seeing that if there's question, it's, it's, it's getting sent out. But I don't, know how, I don't know how that's trickled down to every small hospital you know, in every community in the country. I mean, one of Mark's points is that you don't want the second reading inside the same hospital because... Yeah. And he goes further to say <laughs> that ideally you don't want the pathology report read by somebody who trained in the same tradition. You know, because of the old voice network. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So thank you all for the detailed attention. We're going to take, I think, about a a 40-minute lunch break. Thank you all for careful attention to very complicated uh, stuff. You've been listening to part two of a three-part TNS conversation with Dr. Brian Bausch and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.